So how'd you vote, Tegan? Well, I guess I would have voted yes, Chris. Would have. I was watching the floor of the the house. That wasn't you down there? I could have sworn I saw you down there. Oh, no, Chris, I'm in the Senate. You've confused Uh, the two chambers. Yeah, We're looking at each other right now via video. Let me just say, Senator, the chamber that they've given you, it's a a little bit sparse. You might want to talk to the majority leader. I'm voting remotely, Chris. Of course you are. Okay. You can can call me Senator. As soon as you win again, I will. I promise. Why don't we turn to the mailbag? For folks who want to send questions to the mailbag, you can contact Hagen via Political Wire. You can email me any questions by simply replying to any day's newsletter. Now, let's get on with business. The big news of the week, of course, was the House vote on the debt limit and federal spending bill, which passed 314 to 117 on Wednesday night. 149 Republicans voted yes, 71 voted no, 165 Democrats voted yes, 46 voted no. Before we get into the political questions, what did you think of the vote? What did you think of the numbers? What did you think of the process? Well, it's definitely a win for bipartisanship. I mean, we've been hearing all sorts of things about where the rumblings were on the right, on the left. But the fact that such overwhelming majorities of both parties voted for this, I think that's actually a pretty good sign. And I know that President Biden, in the aftermath of announcing this deal, has tried not to gloat about it, has tried not to say that he won one too many things because he specifically said that's not going to help it pass if he's running around talking about all the things he won in this negotiation. But the idea that a bill to lift the debt ceiling through the 2024 presidential campaign could be done like this with really only very minor losses on his side, and Biden was able to protect his entire agenda. I think that's a big win for him. And for Kevin McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy is likely going to still be speaker a little while longer. So while he probably is a little weaker than he was just two weeks ago, he's still going to be speaker. It doesn't look like there's going to be a movement to get rid of him. So before we get into McCarthy, let's talk just a little bit more about Biden. Because two of the great lines this week really revolved around the core of how he operates. Great lines, in my opinion. First one was, and you just kind of referred to it, there were questions from journalists asking him, well, hey, if this is such a great deal, why aren't you gloating more? Why aren't you bragging about what you won more? And his line was what you said, you know, know, if I gloat, if I brag about what happened, do you think that that's going to get me anything? Do you think that's going to get me more votes or Republican support? And then, of course, he added the zinger at the end saying to the journalists who asked the question, that's why you're such bad negotiators. That was one. The other side of it was a number of tweets that kept saying to Republicans, and some of this came off of Representative Nancy Mace from North Carolina, her quote about Biden can't find his pants. A number of people sending tweets along the lines of, if this guy is so mentally debilitated, how come he keeps getting the best of you on these deals? And so on both fronts, Biden's ability to get what he needed and wanted, and maybe not exclusively, but to a great extent, and we should talk about the bipartisan factor and the extent to which getting a bipartisan win is positive for Biden's brand. But on that part of it, and then on the other part of it, it wasn't just what he got, but in a way, how he did it, the bringing it together in that bipartisan manner that we've talked about. Is Biden not, in a sense, the big winner here? 
Oh, I think he's very much the big winner. And I, I think he's a big winner for two reasons. The first one being that he doesn't have to deal with a debt ceiling again throughout his first term. So that issue is off the table. This idea of taking the country hostage, Republicans just have lost a major leverage point on Joe Biden right there. But the second thing is, it's exactly as you said, it is completely on message for Joe Biden. Joe Biden got into a room, got his people into a room, negotiated a deal, worked with Republicans and came out in the final vote in the House. It was large majorities of Republicans and Democrats voting for this bill. And so while they all had their own reasons for doing it, at the end of the day, it's exactly what Joe Biden had hoped. And I can imagine that he will be crowing about this for weeks after the debt ceiling has passed him. So he didn't want to do it before the House vote, but this is a big, big win for Joe Biden, no doubt about it. The Republicans essentially got no more than they would have gotten in a normal budget negotiation with the White House. When the opposite party controls one branch of government, you're obviously going to have to negotiate. And this was, in effect, a budget negotiation, even though it would have much more dire consequences because it was about the debt limit. But at the end of the day, Republicans didn't win anything. As Josh Marshall from Talking Points Memo said, when you go into Denny's with a gun and say, give me the money, if all you get is breakfast, that's a fail. <laughs> well, it's a grand slam, but it's a fail. Is Biden too old? Can he not find his pants? Does he need to eat soft food? Well, it's, I mean, Chris, it's exactly as you said. You can't have it both ways. Republicans can't say that he's senile and suffering from dementia and at the same time having him whip them around and in, in winning in these negotiations. I mean, for the last two and a half years, we've seen Joe Biden get most of his agenda through the House of Representatives one way or another. And over the course of the last five months, when Republicans have been in control of the House, he seems to be doing just fine. And this is a big win for him. Pushing this thing off, I can't tell you how important it is that Joe Biden doesn't have to deal with a debt limit until January of 2025. Republicans gave away their leverage point, and they really won very little in return. Actually, is this an argument for a president with legislative experience? All of that time that he spent in Congress, in, in the Senate, it's really paying off. Well, it's exactly what he ran on, right? He ran on the idea that he spent his life in the Senate. He made friends across the aisle, sometimes controversially. He talked about some of those segregationist white senators that he was friendly with, that he cut deals with. You know, that would sometimes get him in trouble. But Joe Biden has always positioned himself as the guy who understands what the other side is thinking, tries to find common ground, and then gets it done. And really, his presidency over the last two and a half years has shown that he's been quite good at that. So let's talk about the other protagonist in this uh, drama, Kevin McCarthy. And the question the New York Times asked, can McCarthy pass the debt deal and keep his job? The article that you wrote, The Precarious Position of Kevin McCarthy, let's go through both of them. The New York Times this week wrote, hard right lawmakers who have for years resisted increasing the nation's borrowing limit did not mince words about how they thought Speaker Kevin McCarthy fared during negotiations with President Biden over averting a federal default. Quote, nobody could have done a worse job, said Representative Dan Bishop of North Carolina, who said he was fed up with what he said were Mr. McCarthy's lies about the deal he was going to get. Representative Bob Good of Virginia openly marveled at how, quote, our own leadership caved to Democrats on major tenets of the debt limit bill that Republicans passed last month. Representative Chip Roy of Texas claimed the deal had torn the conference asunder and promised Republican leaders would face a reckoning. But for all the fury about the deal, few far-right Republicans have yet to seriously entertain the notion of ousting him over it. 
And isn't that last line the point? Doesn't this just feel like a bunch of noise from these folks? Doesn't it, to use a saying from Chip Roy's home state of Texas, feel like a whole lot of hat and not a lot of cattle? Well, you know, what Democrats were looking at on the vote was McCarthy had promised the White House that he could get about 150 Republicans to vote for this final package. A lot of people didn't believe him. He ended up getting 149 votes. That's pretty good vote counting. That's pretty good whipping, isn't it? Not so bad. People thought that he was going to come in with 130, 140, something like that. But the idea that he got 149 Republicans to vote for this, despite all of the rhetoric over the last week and despite the complaints from the House Freedom Caucus. That's pretty impressive. And so while I think in general, this process actually helped Joe Biden more than it helped Kevin McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy is still going to be speaker. But the main reason McCarthy is going to be speaker, keep in mind, 71 Republicans voted against this bill, even though McCarthy had staked his reputation on it. 71 Republicans still voted against this thing. But the simple reason why McCarthy will be speaker today and next week and next month is the fact that Republicans really just don't have an alternative. So how'd you like to do a postmortem on one of the pieces that you wrote this week? I'm thinking we go through it and let's see how various parts of it hold up. And if there are any things that you would revise your analysis on after the vote. Well, Chris, as you know, as you know, I write with strong opinions, but they're loosely held. So if I'm wrong, so be it. That's why we call this podcast Trial Balloon, right? That's right. Just launching a trial balloon to see how it fares. Just floating some ideas. So let's see how you feel that you did. So the piece was The Precarious Position of Kevin McCarthy. You wrote it on Wednesday before the vote. Speaker Kevin McCarthy may be facing a rebellion from the most conservative members of the Republican caucus, but he'll probably keep his job for now. So far, so good, no? I think so. I think I'm right on. Pretty good, my man. However, this may not be the case in the months to come. I mean, yeah, a lot of things might not be the case in months to come. Let me explain why I said that, because I do think McCarthy is weaker at the end of this process than he was when he started it, because I think he's angered a significant number of people on his right flank. He's angered people like Chip Roy. He's angered a lot of these House Freedom Caucus members. Now, interestingly enough, some of them have stuck with him the entire way. Jim Jordan has stuck with McCarthy, but there's a lot of them that really just don't trust McCarthy anymore. There was discussion from Chip Roy that McCarthy would never let something like this go through the Rules Committee if all Republicans didn't vote for it. Well, there were at least two Republicans who didn't vote for it. And these are Republicans who are going to be annoyed with Kevin McCarthy. And while they might not have the power to oust him right now, that doesn't mean that that won't grow as McCarthy continues in his job. Did we ever get to the bottom of whether that side deal ever actually occurred between McCarthy and Chip Roy or whoever else that he wouldn't allow anything to get out of committee if it didn't have unanimous Republican support in the committee? Or is that still unknown whether that deal that Chip Roy said was made, that it was actually made? Jake Sherman from Punchbowl News said he doesn't have any recollection of that being discussed in public, at least. That wasn't during the speaker vote, the 15 rounds of speaker votes. He doesn't remember that being an issue, but that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. There was a lot of promises made in closed doors. So we still still don't know. No, this may be a he said, he said, Chip Roy versus Kevin McCarthy. So we'll see. You know, with two truth tellers like that, I mean, how are you going to doubt either one of them? Let's go on with your piece. The current unrest in his caucus shows McCarthy was weakened by negotiating a debt ceiling deal with President Biden. The only possible deal was one that everyone hates. That's why there's discussion among some Republicans about using a motion to vacate to toss McCarthy. 
was preserving McCarthy's position to the same thing that allowed him to become speaker in the first place, the lack of a viable alternative. I think you feel the same way. His biggest safety net right now, they ain't got no one to replace him. Maybe nobody wants the job. He's the only one who wants it. Regardless, it doesn't leave the opposition much room to maneuver. You continued, it's unlikely Democrats will help conservatives oust McCarthy. After all, a weakened McCarthy may be a better outcome for the minority party. And the more deals he's forced to cut with Democrats, the weaker he becomes. That's why Democrats are saying they won't help McCarthy pass a rule governing debate of the debt ceiling deal. Let's stop there. Was that a surprise? Democrats did do that, in fact, didn't they? They did. It was a bit of, you know, a bit of drama on the House floor as several dozen Democrats when the rule that preceded the vote in the House on the debt ceiling bill. What did that allow to happen? It just sets the ground rules for the debate before the vote. The rule has to pass first. It is a tradition in the House that the majority party passes these rules, and the majority party almost always passes these rules. But in this case, there were a couple dozen Republicans who refused to vote for it. So McCarthy needed Democrats to help him pass this rule. And the drama on the floor was the fact that there were a couple dozen Democrats who withheld their votes. They let everyone else vote. And then when McCarthy clearly wasn't going to get the votes, these Democrats voted in favor of this because they wanted this bill to come to the House floor. After all, this is a bill that their president, Joe Biden, had negotiated and they wanted it to come to the floor. But there was a little bit of drama there. The question is, what did those Democrats get from McCarthy to actually go vote? McCarthy says, he said publicly to reporters afterward that he gave Democrats nothing. There was discussion before the vote. Perhaps there was some earmark money that would come. Democrats have been very upset with the amount of earmark money that they could actually have access to in the appropriations process. As we're discussing this, we don't know exactly what was given in order to get those Democrats to help McCarthy pass this rule. But that surprised you that Democrats did vote and did help McCarthy in that way. It didn't really surprise me. Ultimately, it surprised me that they allowed the drama to happen because it was kind of interesting because all of a sudden everybody had voted. It was clear McCarthy didn't have the votes. And then a flood of them just came in and voted. So the question mark is, did they get anything? Did they hold up McCarthy as he came hat in hand trying to get the number of votes? But Maybe what um, they got was the drama. That's a nice little scene to get to ride in for the rescue. Yeah, they got the drama. And they also, you know, it was a signal to some of McCarthy's opponents within his own caucus, some of these conservatives on the House Freedom Caucus, that once again, McCarthy Mm -hmm. needed Democrats to get something done, and he wasn't doing what they wanted because they withheld their votes. So this is the type of thing where it's just chip, chip, chip. It just weakens the foundation on which McCarthy stands. Cutting to the end of your piece, You wrote, as Josh Hutter astutely observes, quote, McCarthy's core problem is that doing his job puts his job in jeopardy. Speakers must pass, must pass bills. Then back to you. Spending bills have turned into the ultimate wedge issue that Democrats can use against Republicans. As long as Republicans remain starkly divided on spending priorities, the tenure of a Republican speaker is likely to be short. And that is, I think, where you kind of came out. You think that he's got more time, but you don't think he's a lifer. It's hard for me to see how Kevin McCarthy, through a two-year term as speaker, how he becomes stronger at this point. As Josh Hutter mentions, by doing his job, it puts his job in jeopardy because his caucus is not united. His caucus is deeply, deeply and bitterly divided. And the more votes that we have like this one, the more votes where McCarthy needs Democrats to help pass a bill, 
the weaker he's going to get. And so ultimately, we'll see if he lasts the full two years. He's only going to get weaker from here on out. It's hard to see how he gets any stronger. Well, we'll see if he gets any stronger, but do you know what's getting bigger? (laughs) Tell me, Chris. The group of people running for the Republican nomination for president. On Wednesday, Axios wrote, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is expected to announce his 2024 Republican candidacy for president next Tuesday in New Hampshire. Christie, who is 60, is a former close Trump ally who now calls the former president a, quote, coward and, quote, puppet of Putin. Meanwhile, Semaphore wrote on the same day, former Vice President Mike Pence plans to launch his 2024 bid for the White House next Wednesday, I guess the day after Chris Christie. Pence, who has been exploring a bid for the last several months, has criticized Trump following the January 6th Capitol riots, in which Trump pressured Pence to reject the election results and falsely claimed he had the power to do so. Semaphore also might have left out an important little point, as well a day in which the crowd walked around telling Mike Pence they wanted to hang him. Additionally, earlier this week, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson announced. So we now have Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Asa Hutchinson, Chris Christie, Mike Pence, possibly Chris Sununu. Who am I forgetting? And do any of these names matter? The top attraction is Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis tearing each other apart, which, by the way, in just a few days has turned absolutely vicious on how they're going after each other. I mean, the idea that Trump is really going after DeSantis and his political career, he wants to end DeSantis's political career. This is not just about beating him in a presidential primary. And the idea that it has turned so vicious so quickly really suggests or really should make Republicans worried about the idea that there's going to be some sort of unity at the end of this process. This has already gotten ugly and we're still eight months before the first vote. But in terms of these other guys, does Mike Pence really matter? I mean, maybe around the margins. It's hard to see why he's even running. Chris Christie is a little bit more interesting. He is, as some analysts have called him, the human wrecking ball. And as former President George W. Bush used to call him, he used to call him big boy. Well, you know, as a human wrecking ball, Chris Christie is pretty tough. We all remember back in 2016 when Christie took down Marco Rubio in a debate, absolutely ended his presidential campaign in about five minutes. And Chris Christie is looking to do it again. His big complaint about the Republican field is that no one's willing to mention Trump by name. Even DeSantis right now, he attacks Trump without naming him. He attacks by euphemism. That's a good way to put it. It's extraordinarily weak. Chris Christie is going to go right after Trump. And that means that Trump's going to go right after Chris Christie. So this is going to be a ugly presidential primary, mainly because Donald Trump is in it right now. Trump is running with a whole set of legal problems following him. And this is going to get bumpy. This is going to get very uncomfortable for a lot of people in this field. And we'll see how this all turns out. But On the one hand, you've got a big presidential field, which is probably a good thing for Donald Trump. But on the other hand, you've got an awful lot of people waiting in the wings in case something forces Donald Trump out of this race or the legal problems really finally overcome him. Is that their play? 
Are they like the small fish hanging around, picking up scraps, or the small dog in the pack just waiting for whatever scraps exist, or waiting for the leader to implode? I mean, is is that their play? Like, if he implodes and I'm not in, I can't win, so I might as well get in and let's see if he implodes. I mean, is that their play? I think it absolutely is. I, if you look at Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina. Tim Scott has raised $20 million or something like this already that he's able to use for his presidential campaign. Many people have written him off as a guy who's simply running for vice president. And that may be. Tim Scott isn't willing to criticize Donald Trump very much. He's really not looking to take the fight to Donald Trump. Maybe he's just waiting in the wings to be vice president. Or unlike some other candidates out there, he's got a huge benefactor in Larry Ellison, the founder of Oracle who is worth something like $30 billion and is willing to spend an enormous amount of money backing Tim Scott. What that means is practically is that Tim Scott is not going to drop out of this race. Tim Scott's going to be in this race in the end if and until something like this happens to Trump where he's no longer viable and Republican voters think he's no longer viable. That's what he's counting on. I think anybody who's betting on this right now It's really hard, first of all, to bet against a former president. It's hard to bet against a former president who really controls the apparatus of the Republican Party, who designed the primary rules to benefit him. I don't think you can say that Donald Trump is going to get beat at this point. And the other thing is that every time he gets indicted or gets in legal trouble, it seems to help him in the polls. So we'll see. Maybe Chris Christie will take him out. Maybe someone like Tim Scott will be waiting in the wings to pick up his supporters when the Republican primary voters just get tired of all of this. Maybe Ron DeSantis somehow resurrects his candidacy in Iowa, wins Iowa by double digits, and then goes on to win New Hampshire. And then all of a sudden he's seen as the viable candidate. I think that's probably more unlikely than Tim Scott becoming president, to be honest. I realize, you know who I forgot? Who's that? Glenn Youngkin is now saying again that maybe he's going to, he's taking a fresh look. He, he, they say he's taking a fresh look, but are, they're also talking about him waiting until the November elections in Virginia to be done. So that would require Glenn Youngkin to get into the race only a couple months before the voting starts in Iowa, which seems to make no sense whatsoever. So if that's his play, that's going to go down in history as one of the dumbest moves out there. I think he's trying to get attention more than anything else, Chris. Well, it's a good day to talk about history. The debt-limited federal spending bill is on its way, and who knows what other history is going to be made this weekend. Well, and don't forget, the U.S. Senate has to take up that bill. There might be some drama there. So politics does not get boring, Chris. Never boring. Talk to you soon, Tegan. See you, Chris.